All right, well, I'll go ahead and bring it in, and we'll get this going. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where sometimes the obvious opening songs aren't the greatest opening songs. Hello and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of the best Green Lanterns out there. Well, except for Guy, he's not a Green Lantern, but that's beside the point. Today we're going to be covering a trio of issues. Uh, we're going to be covering Green Lantern 61, which deals with uh, Kyle and his little booby Donna Troy, going to have a nice little picnic on Mars, which gets interrupted by Darkseid's son, Calibat. So, not really a good picnic at all. In the uh, the third book, uh, well, actually the second book we're going to be covering, it's the sort of prequel to the Guy Gardner book in Superman Action Comics. We're going to deal with Guy Gardner, who last issue had kind of a freak out at the end of it, and you know was kind of having problems with his new ultra secret morphing Voldarian powers. I used air quotes against the microphone so you can see it. And uh, basically, he's going to uh, Metropolis to see if he can get Superman to help him out with it. Unfortunately, that kind of backfires, and that of course leads us into the issue of Guy Gardner number thirty where Guy and Superman basically have a big old tussle with uh, Rampage along. And Supergirl's there, too, so it's all fun. But of course, whenever I have a Superman issue that I need to cover over at Greenland, or over at uh, just one of the guys, I can't even remember what show I'm on, I have a special, I like to have special guests on to help me deal with this. And of course, the special guest I have is uh, one of the best podcasters out there. He's the host of Superman Forever Radio. He's also the host of Pad Smash. He does uh, co-hosting on uh, Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age. And he's also, I guess most germane to this show, the co-host of Green Lantern's Light. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. J. David. Hey, Thank Jay. you. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I always forget which show I'm on. I've introduced, uh, it was New 52 Adventures of Superman where I had to go through it three times because I kept saying <laughs> Superman Forever. Oh, it's Superman in the Bronze Age. So no, I'm I'm kind of it's kind of like the stepfather. Every now and then I just have to ask, who am I here? That's okay, I understand. You know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I since, since they've started hooking me in to do shows over at Two True Freaks, every once in a while I forget where I am as well, so it's no problem. But yeah, uh, David's been polite enough to come over and uh, review one of the books, and he's going to give us the synopsis of uh, Action Comics number seven hundred nine. After we get to uh, the coverage of Green Lantern number sixty one, which we will do. Here, after we take a little break and play some promos for a few podcasts that I think you should all be listening to. Maybe one of David's. I wonder if I can find a podcast for that. That would be synchronous. <laughs> Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. 
one final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weaver, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. And we're back. So to start off this time, I'm going to start off with my coverage of Green Lantern number 61, which was cover dated April 1995 with a release date of February 21st, 1995. Had a cover price of $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $0.70 UK. The title was Picnic. The story was written by Ron Mars. Penciler was Andy Smith. Inker was Romeo Tangal, colorist was Steve Batson, letterer Albert Guzman, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Well, it looks like Kyle's streak of bad luck with women has come back in full force as dark star Donna Troy chases into the cosmos, declaring that when she catches him, he's a dead man. Kyle tries to slow the ticked-off titan by putting up ring construct roadblocks, I don't get that, but instead gets a maser blast to, the, to his face for the trouble. Passing Kyle, Donna taunts the lantern as we're shown that it was all just a race to a picnic spot on Mars, with the loser having to be the winner's slave for a day. Hmm, kinky. I like, I like where this is going. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, we don't have to see Kyle in a gimp suit, but we do see him ring construct a ex- sexy French maid to set up a picnic blanket. Donna tells Kyle to knock off the misogyny, and the two sit down for a nice lunch on the Red Planet. Kyle asks Donna about her divorce trial, and she says things could get ugly, but with her former husband trying to get with her former husband trying to get custody of her son. But she knows that Kyle is here for her, and together they'll get through this. Meanwhile, the Overlord of Apocalypse is playing peeping Tom on our two heroes, wondering why how they might affect his plans. Against the wishes of the sycophant Assad, Darkseid finds that the best plan of action is to have his son Calabac attack the Green Lantern to assess his powers. Taking two dog soldiers with him to keep the Dark Star occupied, Kalibak swears that he will make the Green Lantern taste defeat. Back on Mars, the couple is about to start making the heroic beast with two backs when Boom Tomb Interruptus occurs and Kalibak steps forth and engages Green Lantern in the issues recommended about of Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Lane in 2011, all rights reserved. Donna realizes that aliens must be Darkseid's men since they came out of a Boom Tomb, and they must all and they must all be after Cal for some reason. Of course, that theory is put to rest when the dog soldiers attack her as well. At the same time, Kyle is getting his butt handed to him by Calabac. The son of Darkseid is about to deliver a killing blow to the Down Lantern when he realizes that the tr- hero truly is no threat to him. He reaches down to take the ring from Kyle's finger, but before he can remove the Emerald Band, he gets a maser blast from one very P.O. Donna Troy. Donna tells Kyle that Kyle needs to step up as these goons were sent by Darkseid. Having no idea what a dark side is, Kyle rings up Yolner and barely smites the frost giant wannabe. Knowing that he's been beaten, Kalapak summons the boom tube and heads back to Apocalypse, with Kyle fle- feeling pretty smug with his victory. But now, back on the New God's homeworld, Kalapak informs his father of his failure, which Darkseid is like, 
well, should have I expect anything less? And sends Cal back to his room to think about what he's done. Finally, we're treated to an unseen person hitched, hitching down a Texas highway. A tank top wearing female stereotype and a Silverado pulls over to get the stranger lift. After asking where he's headed, the man says, on down the road. Being that the hitchhiker is cute and stuff, the female offers the traveler a ride and asks his name. And on the last page of the book, we find that the mysterious man is none other than Al Jordan. Dun, dun, dun. Didn't see that coming. No, I, I... Well, they kind of set it up in the last book that there was someone walking out in the middle of the desert, but it, it could have been anyone. I mean, it could have been, you know, heck, it could have been David Banner for all we know, <laughs> which would have Sad been... Sad piano music. Yes. Well, that actually would have been a more interesting... Uh, that would have been a more interesting surprise ending than I think this would. But yeah, Hal's back, I guess, if, if you can say that. But David, if you want to go ahead, uh, hit us with some notes. Yeah, this was... Uh... Jumping into this was odd because normally on Greenlanders, like we're still in the 80s. And this actually would have come out during my what I call my dabbling period where I had stopped buying books regularly and would just jump in now and then. And I'd heard about this new upstart Green Lantern, but I didn't get into him until way later. But I would have actually come in about two years down the road. So with the whole Kyle and Donna thing, it had progressed and – I just loved what they were doing with these characters. I think it was Donna that actually started hooking me into Kyle's adventures. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Kyle was a character that had to earn my respect, and he did over the years. But I just thought these two, as a pairing, and I know there's some things to be revealed yet, but I thought they were just a perfect match. It made total sense to me. I loved Donna's Dark Star status. But don't ask me to put any logic behind it, because I don't know why that connection made sense, but... To me, I was thumbs up all the way as soon as I saw that. Um, Page five, as we kind of alluded to, you can use a Green Lantern ring to make a scantily clad maid. I should really rethink my Green Lantern fantasies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, yeah, we saw a lot of that in the early issues of Green Lantern, especially uh, the early stuff with Gerard Jones with Guy Gardner, because at that point, you know, Guy was pretty much a giant lech and he would get a bunch of maids to basically bring him beer and stuff. So that's. That's not an uncommon thing for Green Lantern, but yeah, uh, Kyle takes it to new heights, especially having her uh, bend over right in front of him. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, with page six, I, I for a moment, I'm like, wow, Donna whines a lot. And I'm like, wait, isn't she a girl from Themyscira? No, wait. She's not from Paradise <laughs> Island anymore. So her origin is more screwed up than Power Girl and Hawkman combined. And then I just kind of gave her, a, you know, gave her a pass. I'm like, fair enough. Well, and she's also going through a divorce, so we'll we'll cut her a little slack. But yeah, uh, yeah, she does seem a little bit whiny, especially from you know from the fact she prior to this was you know an Amazonian warrior. So. Or was she? <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Zero Hour. You fixed everything in a way that you completely did. Yeah, completely broke it again yes. in a different way. Huh. Um, I never noticed this. I didn't remember this. Why does she have a bottle opener on her shoulder pads? <laughs> I don't know. I, I the Dark Star uniform has always mesmerized me for its just it's very nineties intricacies. Uh, I don't know whether those are supposed to be shield generators or flight things or something. Uh, you know, I never read the Dark Star's book, so I couldn't really tell you. But it could be bottle openers. You know, it come in handy every once in a while, I guess. Pop open a cores while I'm on patrol. Well, 
I'm certain the Dark Stars have far more lenient rules on drinking while you're in action. So there you go. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Uh, page seven, Darkseid shows up. I know him. But why Why are Steppenwolf and, and Calabac dancing in the background like this is a Jay-Z video? <laughs> yeah, they, they are kind of, uh, they are getting down and getting funky back there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, uh, you know, maybe he, maybe Darkseid has some jamming tunes on that, uh, <laughs> on that awesome stereo system he's listening to. He's blasting out thrift shop and they're popping tags. Oh yes, only got twenty dollars in their pocket. Yeah. Um, I, I know the song. I'm not going to sing it. Sorry. <laughs> my kid, my kids listen to it. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Well, it's not Call Me Maybe, so there's a plus. Uh, yes, there is. Um, I love... I don't know why, but it seems like Darkseid seems to be the only character that seems on model. Because Kyle morphs between pages. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot of this is due to the fact that it's not the the standard artist here. It's not Daryl Banks doing the art here, it's Andy Smith. And I guess Andy Smith did a lot of work with uh, Ron Mars over in the uh, Silver Surfer issues that he did for Marvel. So maybe uh, maybe Daryl Banks just couldn't uh, had other things to do, or he couldn't uh, make the deadline, so they got Smith in to do it. But yeah, a lot of the characters don't look on Marvel, but uh, Darkseid does, and I Think maybe that uh, has something to do with uh, uh, again the fact that maybe Andy Smith had some uh, talented to drawing uh, Galactus, which is a character kind hmm. of like Darkseid, uh, especially in figure. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, he really nails the facial expression on page eight and panel two there, where Darkseid looks at Dasad and just says, "Please." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Feel free to bleep that if it's funnier that way. Uh, um, sure. And then Darkseid yells for Calabac. Yeah, he's two feet away. <laughs> Are you well, Alexander Knox in the first Batman film? Copy. Uh, y- yes, sir. <laughs> well, that's just Darkseid's way. He's yelling at everyone. I mean, and he can. Who's going to bitch at him? <laughs> True. He's Darkseid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on page 10, um, Calabac spilled the cider. Oh, Damn you, Calabac. That probably was a good $5 bottle of cider. Uh, party foul. Uh. Now, actually, my, my, my actual note here is, what happened? Because we have the great shadow work here. Because it actually looks ex- you know exceptional with the colors oh, yeah. and, the, and the figures in shadow. Uh, then you have the, the panel you know, where the word boom is forming the actual panel itself. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the, of the issue, with the exception of a couple of spots... It doesn't live up to that because this is actually the one of the best spots in the book. No, I agree. And that was one of the neat things I wanted to comment in my notes was the framing of the panel and the entire word boom. That's that's it's always neat when they do that. And it's a way that they can get away without having to let the readers know that it's a boom tube. So, uh, of course, pretty much anyone who knows they're coming from Apocalypse and this is, you know, a Legion of Dark Side is going to know it's a boom tube. But for it's it's just a nice sort of aesthetic look there. I like that. Yeah, but yeah also, I I agree yeah. with you. The artwork throughout the rest of the issue is kind of it's not bad, but it's just subpar. Yeah, good word for it. Um, we have Donna and Kyle reacting. Boy, girl, on page eleven, like they're offended. Well, Donna, you used to be Wonder Girl. Mm-hmm. Well, she, she she's grown up and now she's Dark Star, so she can't take on the title of girl. I guess. Sure. Uh, and then we have fisticuffs, 
between Kyle, Kyle and Darkside or Kyle and Calabac. Mm-hmm. Um, on page twelve, Calabac pimp slaps Kyle, <laughs> which yes, is funny because the the superpowers figure actually has basically pimp slap action. <laughs> if you ever is look that... at it, he pivots left and right with his with his hand open. So is it actually described as pimp slap action? Pimp no, slap no. action? Oh. Kenner couldn't. They couldn't copyright that. So well, that's that's disappointing. Yeah, and mine's not in the package, so oh, okay. I, I can't confirm. But then it, it, the issue kind of degrades from here where it's a lot of, well, as you said, Andrew Leyland's famous Fighty McFightenstein. Mm-hmm. We have Kyle making lots of different guns, shields. And then I kind of jumped, because I'm you know kind of zoning out as like action, fighting, okay. And then on page 16, when Donna Troy pops up behind Calabac, and she's just sizzling with energy. Mm-hmm. You know Calabac's screwed. And I think Calabac knows it because he has a look of uh, shock. Yeah, well, uh, I, I'm pretty certain that Calabac uh, is is the essentially the the foil for Darkseid. That whenever Darkseid sends him in because he knows Calabac is going to somehow screw things up. And Calabac, unfortunately, doesn't fail in this aspect. He screws <laughs> things up. You know, marvelously in this. He's and the he, Barney Fife of the fourth world. Exactly. <laughs> and he just completely underestimates the fact that Donna Troy is not going to be taken out that easily. And uh, it's good artwork here on this page. And it's also uh, it's also got that uh, uh, careful shirt ripping thing on uh, Donna here as well, where just a few more inches of fabric gone and you'd be seeing more of Donna than you probably ever have. So that's nice. Yeah. You got that going for you. <laughs> um, really this note applies as pages 17 through 19 for all the guns and the made constructs in this book. Nothing excited me more than seeing him pop out a full on Milnior. Mm-hmm. And I didn't connect until you said it in the, uh, in the synopsis that, wow, Calabac's very much a frost giant. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of, I kind of was joking because it's relevant to the the Thor movie that came out a couple of years ago. Not la- yeah, the summer before last, mm-hmm. and uh, it it it's in people's minds. But yeah, when I saw that hammer, I was like, uh, he's just wielding Mjolnir or however you pronounce it. Meow meow. I can't remember how the the hot chick from the movie pronounced it, but yeah, it's it, it's it is basically just a big fight sequence. I mean, there's not much plot in it. Uh, the artwork's decent, but yeah, yeah, it's one big fight scene. So, and then you get Darkseid spanking Calabac like a little girl, and then yeah, that that page twenty is excellent. It's just yeah. Darkseid to one side of the panel. You just see half of his face, and he's just glowering the entire time. And he doesn't really have to say much of anything except you know uh, the, the, uh, that final panel of remove yourself, you know, and he knows that <laughs> oh. I did bad, Daddy. Me sorry. Uh, yeah. What? What is up with Hal on the final page? Yeah, I was going to say, that doesn't look like Hal. I mean, Hal, uh, he beefed up or something. Maybe, he, you know, that's that's a Tom Arnold version of Hal. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's just really thick. And, you know, when, when he says, my name's, uh, you know, Hal Jordan, uh, what's yours? I was like, that's not Hal Jordan. That's someone else. Uh, and uh, maybe it's the, just the fact that Andy Smith hadn't drawn much of Marvel stuff at this time. 
or much of uh, DC stuff at this time, uh, that he didn't really have the model down for Hal Jordan. But yeah. You know, he for, looks for... kind of like Major Force in terms of his his head shape. That's true. It is it is a bit more blocky and is a bit more stocky, especially his chin. His chin butt down there does make him look a bit more more like Major Force. So oh, I guess there's... poor woman's going to end up in a refrigerator. I just know it. <laughs> uh, well, that's the way it happens to all of them. But yeah, um, I'm going to go through notes. Uh, let's see. On page four, I like the... Uh, slave for a day thing i thought that was a really good idea and uh if donna troy wanted me to be her slave for a day i don't think i'd complain about that uh no way safe perform uh previous to that the whole roadblocks in space on page two panel two that just doesn't work for me i mean they're simple road barriers and you've got the infinite vastness of space to move and over around in i mean that's pretty that's pretty two-dimensional thinking, and I think uh, I think uh, this is something that only like Khan, Nuni, and Singh would fall to. <laughs> well, at the same time, Kyle's simply being playful. He's not actually, yeah, trying to impede her too much. Other than that, you know, I think you hit most of my notes. I mean, I I enjoyed the issue, but uh, I think missing Daryl Banks on the issue kind of took away from it because he's started to come into his own on the book and he started to give the book a definite kind of look, especially uh, the the only other artist that I thought uh, really did a good job substituting for Banks so far has been uh, Cully Hamner, who did uh, a couple issues back where uh, Donna helped Kyle move into his apartment. And uh, other than that, uh, the issue, I think, worked pretty well and it was just basically a way to get to shoehorn Darkseid into a Green Lantern book, which I really don't have a problem. Any anytime you can have uh, you know a superhero going up against perhaps you know one of the DC universe's most uh, terrifying, awesome villains, you've got me hooked in. Well, it's hard for me to get mad at Darkseid. No, it's not. <laughs> but uh, unless you've got anything else, uh, I say we. Take a quick break, and we'll uh, come back here in a minute and get on to Action 709. I have nothing else. I don't know if you needed me to confirm. Yeah. No, that's all good. Well, hello there. I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the Internet. Come in. Enjoy my palatial Arctic estate. Ah, I see you noticed the smell of mahogany and my hardback archive and showcase editions. Yeah, I do all right for myself. Listen, why don't you get cozy here with me on my titano skin rug while Matello mixes us up a drinky drink? Matello, soda cola martini, shaken. Look, I want you to come with me to a place. A place where it's only you and me and the Man of Steel, maybe Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane? Wait, wait, where are you going? No, this isn't me coming on to you. This is a podcast promo. What I'm trying to propose is joining me weekly like Clark Kent did when he threw the green crystal into the water and saw Marlon Brando's giant head appear. Only in podcast form and my head just won't even be visible because it is an audio medium. Once a week, delve into the world of Superman with me on Superman Forever Radio. Look at comics, toy lines, TV series, characters, creators, anything and everything connected to the Man of Steel. Every Sunday at supermanforever.com, iTunes, and other podcatchers. 
Superman Forever Radio, fighting for truth and justice forever. That's supermanforever.com. See, I didn't mean what you thought I meant. It's all good. And yes, this is a new glowing white Kryptonian robe. Thank you so much for noticing. And yes, that is Lori Lamaris lounging by the pool. Don't tell her, but we're having smoked salmon for dinner and she takes it very personally. And you know who can't take a joke? Terra Man. You get one Glue Factory reference and he's up in arms. Superman Forever Radio. Keeping J. David Weeder off the streets so you don't have to. And we are back. So to ease my burden on this podcast today, I've had, I've corralled Mr. J. David Weeder in to do the review of Action Comics number 709. Yes, let me, let me take that burden on my shoulders. Um, once again, this was also cover dated April 1995, which is going to be a theme. Um, this went on sale, though, March 7th of 1995. I remember exactly where I was that day. No, oh. I don't. No, I don't. Um, I was going to say, Michael? Is this Michael <laughs> Bailey on the phone? <laughs> Actually, I would have been I would have been a couple months away from my junior prom, so never mind. Okay. Um, for those Superman fans out there who follow From Crisis to Crisis, speaking of Michael Bailey, this is Triangle Year 1995, Triangle 16. So Michael and Jeffrey have not gotten to that as of the time of this recording, and if I'm correct, not the time of this release. Uh, this bad boy has a cover by Mr. Jackson Geis. Geis? Geis? I've always said it, Geis, so... Yeah, Geis works. Uh, but it features a close-up of Superman and Guy Gardner in a grapple, lit by the yellowish-orange light of Guy's out-of-control powers, and the text read, reads, Guy Gardner loses it. Shouldn't they add, like, again to that? <laughs> yeah, that's essentially Guy's modus operandi. <laughs> Gets hit in the head, different Who's... personality. He's almost like Resurrection Man. Essentially, yeah. I never really thought about it that way. No, that's that. I think that might be actually. I'm saying that as a joke, but I think that really is detrimental to the character. That's. I don't know why writers go to that that fallback, but that's why they get paid, right? True. Uh, the story is Crime Tunnel which I immediately thought of Crime Story, an 80s show starting Dennis Farina, written by David Michelini, penciled by Jackson Geis, inked by Dennis Rodier, lettered by Bill Oakley, colored by Glenn Whitmore, edited by Mr. Mike Carlin. And we begin with Guy Gardner sitting in a Metropolis cab near the extensive Queensland Tunnel in gridlocked rush hour traffic when he realizes that his newfound powers are starting to get out of his control again. Despite Guy demanding that the cab driver stop and let him out, well, let him out, they're already stopped, there's nowhere to go, and Guy's alien powers sprout guns in his hands and shred the cab. Just, yeah, shred it like an aluminum can. Meanwhile, back at the Daily Planet, which I always love to say, Clark Kent and his ponytail muse over who is sending multiple messages, each one simply saying, I know. As Lois and Clark try to crack this puzzle, Perry White barges out of his office and states that shots have been fired near the Queensland Tunnel. But, you say, isn't that where Guy is? Yep, and Clark has already switched to Superman as flying that way before Lois can grab a photographer. Also in the tunnel is Metropolis Special Crimes Unit Officer Terrible Dan Turpin, taking some time off and heading to do some fishing at the Swan River where he expects to be bored to death. And then a huge crowd of people begin running the opposite direction past him in the tunnel, screaming about a maniac. And yes, that maniac is Guy, completely out of control to the point where he even looks at the Metropolis police officers as enemies and attacks them. Seeing the mob mentality, Turpin goes, goes into cop mode, as if he has any other mode, 
and comes across a 90s Jean-Claude Van Damme movie scene as some undesirables try a carjacking. Turpin does the count, and it's four of them, one of him. But further down the tunnel, Superman and his awesome hair arrive, and Guy tries to tell Superman that he needs help, but the powers once again take over and Guy attacks the Man of Steel. While Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, commences between Guy and Superman, Turpin makes his stand against the Death Wish 6 reject carjackers, and they give Dan the chance to walk away. Dan doesn't take that chance because he has a job to do, and that job is to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and he's all out of bubblegum. Elsewhere, Guy and Superman's mostly off-panel fight continues, and while Guy's bullets don't hurt Superman, they do wound a nearby civilian. Superman goes to assist the wounded man, who reveals that his truck is carrying radioactive waste, which is illegal to transport through populated areas, but the money is a big stack, and that makes a big difference. But should the walls of the tunnel fail, and the river floods into the tunnel, that would rupture the truck and contaminate all of the water in Metropolis. So after a scene that has no bearing on the Guy Gardner angle, Superman realizes that he has to get Guy out of the tunnel before their fight brings the whole tunnel down. And Guy, of course, uses a bazooka, which does crack the walls, but Superman repairs the wall quickly enough to avoid disaster. Turpin, finished delivering his beatdown to the thugs, realizes that Superman needs his help, and grabs a motorcycle which he, wait for it, rams directly into Guy Gardner, distracting Guy long enough to allow Superman to use a CO2 truck to freeze Guy and his armor forms a shell. So for now, the danger is over, and Superman snags Guy to take him to Star Labs for further research, aka Guy Gardner number 30. And in a final note, Clark returns home to find his mailbox filled with postcards that read, I know. It begins a story that's almost like a conduit to my soul. That is Action Comics 709. Ah, I see what you did there, sir. Yeah. Yes. Ah. <clears throat> Foreshadowing. See, I was going to see, unfortunately, I didn't follow the Superman books at that time. So I was kind of uh, I was kind of off to what was going on. But now that you mentioned that uh, little uh, tidbit there, uh, now I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. Um, I really like this book, uh, starting with the cover, which is an obvious homage to uh, – what action 688, mm-hmm. uh, which was during the uh, reign of the Superman storyline, where it's essentially the same pose, except it was Guy Gardner in his uh, cowboy boots and uh, leather jacket phase. And it wasn't Superman at the time with his uh, luscious hair, uh, but it was the Eradicator with his uh, with his uh, Terminator 1000 glasses or T800 <laughs> glasses. So T800, yeah. yeah. So uh, I like the homage to that, and it's a very yellow cover. Let's see, the title for me, you mentioned uh, Time Chrono, and it, it kind of reminded you of, uh, oh, what did you say? Crime Story. Crime Story. It, to me, it reminded me of a Police Squad episode, especially with the, <laughs> uh, with the Crime Tunnel or When Warriors Strongly Disagree subtitle under there. It kind of reminded me that where they plaster the title across the screen and then the uh, voiceover would be something completely different. So I just kind of got that one. 
again, the I know thing, I guess uh, that uh, relates to the thing in Superman titles. It's nice that they're, well, it's obviously nice that they're carrying on this book. This isn't a Guy Gardner book, it's a Superman book, so they're going to carry on storylines and plot elements that are in the Superman book. But if you're not reading the uh, Superman books at the time, this is just kind of throwaway. But uh, obviously it's very important to the Superman books. And yes, uh, uh, this is another thing at the time. Uh, and on page four of the panel two, with Clark and his ponytail and Superman and his long tear, it's just one more thing that people can get irked about in that why people don't relate to two people. But... But it's a look for the time that works for him, I guess. And it's the 90s, so that having was the, long hair is typical. That was the weird thing for me, is I liked the long hair on Superman. I never got used to a ponytail on Clark Kent. Well, I think it's because Clark's supposed to be a professional. He's supposed to be a news reporter. And you don't see, I mean, even you know, even on the, you know, the sort of on the camera, the the news reporters that have to go out and stand in front of the, the uh, bay while the hurricane comes in, even they, you know, have to look somewhat professional. You don't see them with ponytails. So mm-hmm. that, you know, I can understand how that doesn't work with them. Well, then uh, again, Jim Shooter had a ponytail. Well, Jim Shooter <laughs> probably also had a heroin problem that cost <laughs> half of Marvel's profits there. So you, know, you just go with that. Um, Touche, sir. Yes. Uh, I like the addition of Dan Turpin here. Uh, it's nice to see him in the book, and it's nice to see that he's the uh, consummate ass kicker. I enjoy that. Guy looks kind of on model. Uh, the artwork in here is. I remember last time in the, when I looked at this, or when I uh, looked at 688, it was, I think it was uh, Geis and Grummet, or it may have been uh, Grummet and Hazelwood doing the interiors. Or maybe they were on the. I'm trying to remember who it was, but the artwork's not bad, but Guy looks a little... Uh, the fact that Guy's got big guns in the book uh, has always been a sticking point to me. Uh, in the both Smith issues, Smith always wanted to write Guy as sort of a fighter and a warrior, and he always wanted to get him away from having the big guns. So when Guy pops out the big guns to shoot people, it just kind of bugs me. Pages like it's page nine. It's the panel where Superman's flying in to first meet Guy. Superman does look pretty awesome here, but uh, I think the uh, the long hair definitely works better for him than it does for Clark. I'll give yeah. that to him. I the face though, I'm convinced he's about to become the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on that second panel there on that page, or yeah. on the yeah, he does look uh, a little bit more angry. And the the nice thing about this story is that. Superman is trying to help out as much as possible. He knows that Guy is causing a ruckus and he could bring the city down, but Superman's entire MO is to try and help Guy. He's not trying to defeat him because he knows that Guy is is technically a hero. And uh, the fact that throughout this entire time he's trying to calm Guy down and help him rather than take him out is, is a testament to the character of Superman, in my opinion. Page 11, the one where Turpin starts beating up the uh, punks from Death Wish 4. I, I like that reference. <laughs> uh, panel 2, that guy there, the one who's like saying, well, it's about time. Don't you – I don't pay taxes for people you to sit around eating donuts all day. Is it me or is that guy supposed to look like Rush Limbaugh on that page? He 
maybe on that well, Rush Limbaugh would have had a little less hair, but that's true. But yeah, he looks like he's got that sort of angry sort of Rush Limbaugh look, and the fact that he's complaining about you know being a tax paper. <laughs> Don't know. be alarmed. That's <laughs> that's true. Yeah, the the again, I, I think we talked off air about uh, Oklahoma radio sucking. Yeah, uh, AM or FM radio is so bad here in Oklahoma. I turned to AM radio a long time. That's I've almost been, as bad because it's just basically Rush Limbaugh all over the place as well. So eh. you've, you've always got NPR. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's I guess that's the sort of yin and yang of the AM radio station. So yeah, you can. There's no in the middle, I guess. But there you go. Um, again, this is another big old fighting McFightenstein with a Superman smashing guy on page 13, I guess, through a what is that? Appaloosa bakery truck and. Guy being yes. covered in donuts, so mm, it's a theme. Donuts. Yeah, I'm wanting some donuts now. Mm. Uh, and then on the next page, big guns. <sighs> the big guns just—they irk me. You know, I, I don't mind it so much when he does his fist in the, the sort of mace things, or whenever he, even when he does his fist in the axe. But the fact that he can create guns that fire projectile weapons just uh, it doesn't work for me but it but it does lead to uh collateral damage and uh, it leads to the uh, guy getting shot in there which is another testament which allows superman to go over there and check on the wounded which i really like of course it also leads to the fact that this guy is illegally hauling nuclear waste throughout the uh the tunnel oops so uh yeah i guess uh this wouldn't have been such a problem if Guy Gardner hadn't have come to Metropolis. So I guess knock one up again for Guy being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eventually something would have happened, though. Now, um, as I said, I wasn't really reading Superman all that much. And since um, Michael and Jeffrey hadn't gotten to this on Crisis to Crisis, I don't know what's going on in the storyline. But there were those two or three pages where uh, there were these two pages where this guy is just sitting here ranting about something. Uh, and he's got pictures of Superman up on the wall. Uh, I, I don't know what the heck's going on with that. Uh, do you want to let people in on it, or is it I will let to it? Michael and Jeffrey do that, because it's been a long time. I'm not familiar with the buildup to Death of Clark Kent. Okay. Like I said, this was my dabbling period, where every now and then I would jump in, and I actually oddly tried to avoid the Superman titles, because if you look at one... You're kind of dealing with an interconnected series of four books. So you jump into one, it's a gateway drug to getting right back into comic collecting again. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think I think they adequately plan that out because, and you know, to their credit, the triangle numbering system definitely helped with that. But yeah, I guess this does, and now that it makes sense because they've been advertising a lot in the comics, the uh, the death of Clark Kent thing. So I'm assuming this has something to do with that. So. It leads up to it. I just don't remember all the ins and outs. It's been a long time since I read that one. It yeah, may be well, time for a reread. Well, if you want to folks go check out uh, from Christ to crisis in probably about, Oh, a, a few weeks. They should be covering this. Well, I don't know. Last time they were on the end of December for 93. So it might be, a, it might be a couple of months. Who knows? Uh, Here's another thing that irked me on the next page after that, I guess page 18 maybe, where Guy's on the ground and Superman's behind him. Oh. And Guy grows a giant cannon. 
out of his back. That is perhaps the stupidest thing I think I've seen in comics in quite a while. He's like a violent mogwai. (laughs) See, unfortunately, all I can see is that awful character from the Star Wars Holiday Special that was played by Harvey Corman, who had the volcano on his head, and Uh. he put things in that. I'm sorry to bring up memories of Star Wars Holiday Special. No one wants to have that happen, but unfortunately, this this image just brought that back to me, and it it hurts. Somewhere out there, Scott Gardner is crying. But hey, I mentioned him, so he'll listen to this episode. Oh, no, he won't. (laughs) I I guarantee you, I've talked to Scott Gardner. He will not listen to these episodes. That's fine, though. I'm I'm. But he he he's he's actually. he actually helps me get into podcasting, so I can't I can't fault him a bit for that. So Scott Gardner is your podcasting gateway drug. Yes, he is. Man, jumping a motorcycle over a over a bunch of cars in there. That Dan Turpin is one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Hey, I'm just talking about Dan Turpin. Well, you can do it. <laughs> you actually almost took my exact note, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. Dan Turpin is, he is the white shaft, which sounds dirty, so I'll retract that statement. Who's the black private dick that's a sex machine to all the chicks? You're damn right. Who is the man that would risk his neck for his brother man? Can you dig it? Who's the cat that walk about when that tells you all about? Right on. They say this cat shaft is a bad mother. I'm talking about shaft. He's a complicated man. But no one understands him but his woman. No one understands Dan Turpin like his woman. Yes. Maggie Sawyer. <laughs> Wait. Ooh. Uh, Ooh, that doesn't I don't work think well. That can work at all. Let's see. I guess page twenty. Uh, Superman. Luckily, there was a convenient uh, truck filled with uh, liquid oxygen or liquid nitrogen to freeze Guy Gardner. So that's kind of helpful. Always good to know that right behind uh, trucks of nuclear waste, there are trucks of <laughs> nitrogen. Just make sure you hit the right one. That's exactly true. And then finally, we get uh, the send-off that will lead us into Guy Gardner Warrior number 30 as Guy takes, uh, or Superman takes Guy to uh, Star Labs. And then we get the mailbox full of I Know postcards, which which freaks, uh, was that Clark or is that Reed Richards there on that panel? <laughs> I was gonna say it. It's it's Clark going who, but that is a very Marvel looking panel. I mean, and especially the the lettering on the who there, it looks like something out of you know early you know Kirby Lee Fantastic Four stuff. But overall, a good issue. Again, artwork a bit subpar, but uh, adequate for the story. Uh, what kind of notes do you have, David? Um, popping all the way back to page one. Uh, on the second panel there, the truck reads Grummet Transportation. Mm-hmm. I referenced to Mr. Tom Grummet, whose art was never, ever subpar. No. 
love Tom Grummet. Yes, um, Grummet and Hazelwood. Uh, I talked about this to Michael Bradley when we were covering. It was just an image for uh, Adventures of Superman uh, when he, when they came back after the death, and it had this image of Superman that was drawn by Grummet and Hazelwood, and it was just beautiful. Was that where he was flying over the water or over yes. the? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember oh, that distinctly. I remember where I was when I read that issue. That. So. <laughs> yeah. Good artwork there. Yeah. Um, we never find out if the cab ride costs six fifty though. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask about that. You know, would would it be from you know the airport or wherever a guy came in to to Star Labs to uh, would it be six fifty to get there? Probably not. Probably a little bit more. Yeah. Um, we mentioned that this is leading up to the death of Clark Kent. Okay, Alien Powers guy. This version of of Warrior. It was a hard sell for me because, like I said, I was in and out. I was, I would dip in from time to time. I would check in on the Hulk, check in on the X-Men. I tried to stay away from the Superman books because it would draw me in. And I really just didn't have the money to do so at the time because I was fresh out on my own. And to say I was broke would be a compliment at the time. So I would usually just find comic shops and – or not comic shops, usually newsstands. And as I was grocery shopping, grab a book to read. Um, so I actually found him – through Final Night, which you're going to be getting to several yeah. – you're about, a, what, three months away from that? Yeah, a few months away from that, yeah. yeah. And there was a scene in a in Warriors where, you know, that was where well, – it's just Superman and him talking, I believe. And I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, what the hell happened to Guy Gardner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this – because I, I kind of dug the, the sort of cowboy boot leather jacket thing because it was the powers of Sinestro in a, in a hero. And it was Guy kind of allowed to really be Guy and be fun. So this was this was an adjustment. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think Bo Smith, who was the writer on the Guy Gardner series and eventually Guy Gardner Warrior, kind of wanted to take it that way. He wanted to take it as him being more of an action hero. And unfortunately, from from all the things I've gathered, is editorial again, like they did in the Green Lantern book with Gerard Jones took Guy down this road of being this alien, I've called him Flesh T-1000, where he can basically just morph anything out of his body, including the aforementioned gigantic guns. So I would have liked to have seen uh, a Guy Gardner who was just uh, a giant butt kicker, but uh, they went this alien hybrid thing, and that was... That has its good moments, uh, and it kind of has its bad moments as well. So Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I jump all the way to page 10 because you kind of hit on some of the notes in between here and there. Yeah. Um, the design on Guy's back, especially on the bottom panel, I'm looking at it, and I'm wondering – I actually hate to admit this, but I found myself wondering, does that go all the way down like a tramp stamp? <laughs> that is the biggest tramp stamp I think you've ever had. You know, when your tramp stamp starts at like your pectoral – not pectoral, but your shoulder muscles back there, yeah, that's that's a pretty obnoxious-sized one. Well, it's Guy Gardner. That's true. Everything yeah. is, is bigger for him. <laughs> I didn't uh, – never mind. Just let, let your mind run with that. Nothing was intended, but I'm sure somewhere out there somebody is <laughs> – uh, thinking odd thoughts. Um, I'm going to jump to pages 13 and 14. I wanted to make a joke about senseless 90s violence. However, I think when you have two heroes clashing, you could probably use a bit more because most of their fight, a lot of it happens off panel. We yeah, get a, that's true. We get a couple of pages here and there to catch up, but uh, page 15, the driver's name is Mike. 
His name is Mike Exposition. He enjoys bowling, hee-haw, and revealing important plot points. Oh, I see what you did there, because yes. you know, if you give the characters a name, you feel more for them than rather if they're just some unnamed person who just got shot. I see there. Yes. Very good, sir. Um, we never see this guy again. <laughs> um, page 20, just this is why I love Dan Turpin. When he stands there and he has the choice, you know, I could just walk away. No, I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to go Terminator on this. Superman needs my help. I'm going to grab this motorcycle. And yeah, it is a bit Terminator, but still, we jump to page 21, and then Guy Gardner gets frozen. You know, that didn't even clue into me. But And this was another thing at the time that I wanted to ask. The fact that the liquid nitrogen truck there sprays on him. Did Superman at the time not have uh, the sort of freeze breath, or was that more of a silver and bronze age type trope? He was still able to use freeze breath. Huh. I just I don't think it had occurred to him yet. Okay, well, see that 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 kind of you know makes me wonder why they use the trope of there having to be a you know the sort of well not really MacGuffin but the odd the odd addition of the uh, truck full of liquid nitrogen or liquid oxygen or whatever to, yeah liquid nitrogen there I, so the only thing I can think is that it hadn't occurred to him yet. Yeah, well, it makes sense. But, you know, at least now, if he, while he's taking him to Star Labs, it's a hot day, you know, he can just blast him a little freeze breath along the way. Yeah. Uh, final note is on page 22. If you look at directly below Clark Kent's mailbox. Oh, Apparently, yes. he is a neighbor to the late Joe Schuster, who I had to double check because I didn't, re- for some reason, couldn't remember who died in which order. But Schuster was indeed, pa- had passed away at this time. Siegel was still alive mm. for a little while longer, but... Well, that's that's a nice little homage there. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I saw that night. I didn't make a note of that, but I, yeah, I remember that. And yeah, it's it's nice that every once in a while they pop in these homages to creators or you know artists or such in the book. That yeah. that just adds a bit more. It's a bit with it's a bit of them having a bit of fun with the book. But yeah, yeah, I, I I like this issue and it's a good lead in to the uh, Guy Gardner issue, which. Uh, well, why not? We'll go ahead and take a little quick break. I'll plug another promo here and. Uh, We'll come back after that with uh, issue 30 of Guy Gardner Warrior. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots! Transform! Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honor of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully... And we're back for the final segment of the show, covering Guy Gardner Warrior, number 30. 
which was cover dated April 1995, again a running theme of the show, with the release date this time of March 7, 1995. Cover price $1.50 US, $2.10 Canada, and $70p UK. The title was The Enemy of My Friend. The writer was Bo Smith, penciler was Mitch Bird, inker Dan Davis, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Lee Lowridge, editor Eddie Braganza, and Superman was credited to be created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Encased in a science bubble, Guy Gardner is examined by Star Lab scientist Dr. Faulkner and the Man of Steel himself, Superman. The Last Son of Krypton relates the tale of Action 709 and how Guy came to him for help, but ended up in a superpowered brawl with him. Dr. Faulkner says his molecular structure is transmuting due to Guy's detection of something alien. Of course, that's not the actual baddie aliens that Guy is reacting to, but Superman himself, as the warrior burst free from the science bubble. Meanwhile, on an aircraft carrier in an undisclosed location, the crew is attempting to track three unidentified objects that crash near them. However, their search is cut short as one of the objects, some alien sea creature, crashes into the ship. The creature gives a warning to the crew that this attack is the first of many to be carried out, to be carried out against the last Voldarian. Then, for some strange reason, the creature blows up the ship real good, thus negating the message it was trying to get out, since one would think that most of the seamen on the ship perished in the explosion, but whatever. Back at Star Labs, Guy is doing his best Hulk impersonation as he begins to attack Superman, who shouts for Dr. Faulkner to leave. She does, only to slip away and do her own transformation into the Mohawk She-Hulk, Rampage. Guy knocks the Man of Steel into the wall, and, Rampage, and then Rampage jumps in from behind. Guy scoffs at the gold-skinned gladiatrix and grabs her in a sleeper hole, till Superman blasts him with his heat vision, breaking him out of his dimension. For a moment, Guy can hear the Man of Steel's pleas to let him help, but the Veldarian instincts take over again, changing the in- image of Superman into that of a Krags, a Tormach ally. Guy starts with the Fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserves, again, by slugging Superman, then Jean-Claude Van Damme kicking him into the ceiling. Guy pounds away at the Man of Steel, all the time saying that he won't let what happened to Voldar happen here. Superman reels from Guy's attacks, lighting them to those of Doomsday, but suddenly he realizes that he's freaking Superman and flips Guy on his ass. Landing punch after punch, Krypton's last son finally subdues the rampaging warrior with one mighty blow. Back in New York City, New York City! At a rope, Supergirl flies down to the warrior's bar to try and unwind. Unfortunately, she runs into Desmond Farr, decked down in his Tiger Man form. <laughs> Why? Telling an employee to get Buck Wargo because there's trouble in them their heroes. Supergirl asks what kind of trouble, and Desmond relates the story of Guy freaking out and heading to Metropolis. Desmond asks the Maid of Might if she can help, and she takes off for Star Labs. At another part of the bar, Aresia is fretting over Guy's situation, when who should show up but Parallax himself, Hal Jordan. The two try and talk, with Hal still towing the line that he can make everything better the way it was. Aresia, however, is so over that, telling Hal that the same is not better. She tells her former love to leave, and as he does, she breaks down in tears, mourning the fact that this is not her hell. Back at Star Labs, Superman and Rampage try to figure out how to keep Guy contained. 
The two think that they could put him in the isolation chamber, but Guy thinks differently as he tackles them both from behind. The McFightenstein resumes until Supergirl arrives and uses her shape-shifting abilities to morph herself into a duplicate of ice. Hearing the love of his life causes Guy to regain control and stop attacking our heroes. With the loss of so many people who are close to him, Guy has felt like something bad was bound to happen. The Man of Steel says that his presence might have triggered the reaction, and Supergirl says that they're looking for help for him at Warriors. The heroes part ways with Superman trying to clean up at Star Labs, and Supergirl and Guy headed back to New York City. But from a darkened alleyway, a giant hand emerges and grabs a passing pedestrian. Asking if she'd like to be his take a ride in his Malibu dream car, Dementor reveals the fact that he's now back in the real world, where he can now cause some real carnage. <laughs> ah, Dementor. Shouldn't he be terrorizing Harry Potter? <laughs> oh, if it were only that good. No, no, Dementor should probably be uh, fronting for Megadeth and uh, you know, uh, trying to work on his doomsday look. Because if you saw him in earlier issues, he's got this very red long hair, which looks a lot like Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, if you've ever seen any videos of them. So, Well, you mean Faramir from Lord of the Rings. Oh, that too, yeah. Yep. <laughs> But uh, go ahead, Dave. Uh, hit us up with some notes. Yeah, I jump in at page two because um, apparently Bird thinks that Superman's costume should be black and not blue. And I know we're looking at a outline, but I think Tim Burton of 1995 was furiously scribbling down notes. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And to be honest here, the black, the black silhouette and image looks good and i like the fact that uh, and bird tends to do this in a lot of his books he'll do the sort of black images with the colors of the characters popping out he did this with both uh, about an issue ago with guile and kyle and guy where you could only see the tattoos on guy and you can only see the white and green of uh, kyle's uniform on hmm. kyle it's a really neat image but yeah i think uh bird may be very drawn to the uh, silhouette look not a bad thing here. Um, there's a spot down the road that I'll talk about. Um, I think page three was the best page of the book, but not quite splash page, full page splash material. There's too many artists, especially in the 90s, who decide every little turn should be a full page splash. That's an art form. It's a storytelling technique. And yeah, it looks cool, but I would rather have gotten a little bit more of the fight than this big, huge splash, anime style. Mm-hmm. Well, but yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the speed lines there uh, definitely do give an anime style. Uh, but uh, uh, Bird has this tendency to draw incredibly detailed, big splash pages. So it, it's just sort of typical for the book, I think. True. Um, it, it, as I mentioned, it, it's, an, it's, a, it's an art form of when to use that. And a lot of artists 
even artists I respect and, and love don't necessarily respect that. You know, you should when you're using a full page slash, it should punch you in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> pages four and five. Not sure what's going on here, but I'm pretty certain Milton Bradley were taking notes at the time, and later they would try to pitch a movie based on the game Battleship. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, Liam Neeson wasn't uh, on the ship in in some yeah. way, shape, or form. Exactly. <laughs> course liam neeson makes everything good oh of course he does uh page six things start i mean you alluded to this i had to double check the cover of the book am i reading guy gardner or an issue of the incredible hulk Mm because even superman seems to become more bulbous well and uh, that's another trait of mitch bird mitch bird likes to draw people and he's he he and bo smith i think were a perfect match for this book because Bo Smith is a very manly writer and Mitch bird likes to draw even his females very muscular. Um, he would, he in fact would probably do my best. Uh, he, he's one of my favorite artists in drawing wonder woman because she, she doesn't look, she, she looks more like, um, Oh, if you remember the wrestler, China, from yeah. the nineties. She looks kind of lat. She's, she's built. She's very strong, but she's not, she doesn't have that sort of weird bodybuilder type frame. Uh, and, and she's a little, uh, most artists draw her a bit more demure and uh bird does a good, a good job at that. But um, yeah, most of the characters in a Mitch bird pen story will look pretty beefy. So You've got to kind of just take that into consideration. Well, it's weird that you pointed that out because one of my notes was that Rampage is actually fairly consistent throughout the book where Superman will, will change sizes. And Guy, of course, is changing sizes, but that's part of the story. That's part of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. So Superman keeps morphing because if you look at the next page on page eight or the couple pages later, yeah. he's thinner again. And once again, he's in a black costume and he has Tim Burton hair. You oh, know, dear God. Yeah. It smells like the 90s or Teen Spirit. I'm not sure which. Well, let's hope the 90s because I've heard Teen Spirit house smells awful. Yep. And I keep the scent of the 90s in a heart-shaped box just in case. <laughs> um, page 9. I like the, the composition of the John Cod Van Damme kick. Uh, this is splash-worthy. The art is off balance a little bit. But still, Superman getting... Cur- what is that sound effect? Quoomed. That's relevant. Yeah, that's it, it. It is a good. I I think the art style is off because it's sort of set at that sort of Dutch angle mm-hmm. where uh, the image is actually at sort of a thirty degree angle, so the kick even looks higher than it is. If it were set at a, a or set on a flat plane, it wouldn't look as high as a kick. But it's a really dynamic splash, and it actually looks like Superman is taking a beating here. Yeah. So, I mean, the compass, the comp, yeah, the Dutch angle is what throws it off, but that's a, it's hard, it's hard to wrap your brain around it. It's like you, you, I expect Adam West to start monologuing. (laughs) I'm not going to do an Adam West impression. You're welcome. (laughs) Page 10, actually, kind of continuing that same thing. Going to panel four, it, I had to stare at that for a few minutes because I was convinced I saw a face in there. And it took me, I don't know how long to figure out. Oh, it's it's an impression of Superman's face on Guy's fist. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Guy's sort of morphed his hand into this sort of steel, and I don't know why this is happening. Uh, the 
it looks like his uh, body is getting a sort of uh, metallic sort of sheen to it or metallic armor to it. And yeah, there's the indention of Superman's face as he's punched him in the prior panel on his fist. Either that or it's the reflectiveness of Superman's face. But either way, yeah, that's a bit of art that I really wouldn't have noticed unless you pointed that out. So that's really good. That's really pretty nice there. Oh, good. My staring was not in vain. (laughs) Well, except for those times, you know, in the women's locker room. But that's not in vain either. No, no. No. Um, This is where things got weird. Because I go to page 11 – I'm looking at this huge splash, which, once again, would have been splash-worthy. However, I keep hearing this voice at a toy store saying, Brenda, please bring the Brazilian knockoff Superman in for this. That's right, the (laughs) superpower soldier. No, they won't notice. Because, once again, Superman has changed shape. Yeah, Superman, his face looks a little off-model as well. He looks looks like the Italian Superman now. He looks like (laughs) Vinny Superino. (laughs) But that, that actually continues, though. Because he goes off model on lower left-hand panel of page 12. How did Ronald Reagan become Superman? Well, I and think... Where did he get Dick Tracy's wrist radio? <laughs> See, I like that panel simply because the idea that guy's sort of coming out of it, but Superman's got this look like, uh... No. I'm still going to punch you in the face. <laughs> you had your chance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you could easily misread the sound effect, Kafak. Yes. Uh, yeah, you mix mix up one letter and that fist is going into the wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Page 13. Okay, as one who was kind of dabbling in and out, I would jump into a book here and there. Uh, and admittedly, Ra- uh, Warrior flew under my radar mm-hmm. completely. It, it had to have, or else I would have written a letter to Jerry Ordway and asked him why Mr. Takitani was in this book as well as Power Shazam. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things that I didn't, you know, I didn't mind about the the characters that both set up as sort of guys action team. But the fact that there was this and this was something that we dealt with a few or I dealt with a few issues back. The fact that there were so many characters who were morphers in the book. There was a person that turned into a giant snake. There was a person who turned into some giant gorilla. And then we've got one of the guys team who turns into a giant talking tiger. So and the fact that he just walks around in tiger form all the time just – it makes him a big show-off, essentially. I don't know. If I could turn into a tiger, I might crack that out. Eh. It didn't work out well for Mr. Takitani, though. No, unfortunately <laughs> not. Um, actually, on this page as well, good foreshadowing in showing Ice's image on the wall. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives the idea that Supergirl is paying attention, and she she realizes that you know if – you know, even though if she may not be that knowledgeable about Guy and his life and his uh, relationship with Ice, she can kind of get an idea that this might be something that she can use, a, mm-hmm. not really against him, but to sort of bring him out of his funk. Yeah. And then we get to <laughs> pages 15 and 16. The relationship between – this is a little something that I know about now. Now we're mm-hmm. in my, my zone. The relationship between Hal and Aresia will never – ever cease to be creepy no uh, and especially here on uh, page 15 that panel where he uh, uses the magic green lantern powers to put her back in the suit uh-huh which has the skirt flying up far too high yep so high that you're wondering is she wearing anything underneath that uh, 
Here, uh, let, let me help you play dress up. Okay. You wear that, and I'm a naughty fallen superhero, killed off all of his friends. Go. <laughs> but, th- but then again, right after that, and I mean, let's be honest, Hal's the horniest man on the planet. Even you've said it. True. As much as the scene was creepy just in that kind of sexual undertone way, but also in Hal being just plain creepy now, it's heartbreaking. Because I'm coming at this especially from the vantage point of where in Green Lantern's light we're at this point where this relationship is happening. So I'm getting this weird glimpse of the future, and yeah, I knew a lot of what happened after that. But to jump in and see a scene like this is kind of jarring. Mm-hmm. And they they do a really good job that, uh, you know, after Hal leaves, that Orisi is broken up. I mean, she still has feelings for Hal, but she realizes that Hal has crossed some path. He's he can't come back from where he is and this isn't her how, and it breaks her up. And then that, that, that second to last panel on page 16, she's just, she's just torn up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a good storytelling and uh, good artwork here. So yeah, it's a, it's a real emotion. And especially we're dealing with Hal Jordan, who is a character we've known for a long time. And suddenly it's somebody we've trusted as a superhero. We're seeing him as this, this flip side to that not quite a villain but somebody that his appearance makes you feel very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. so it it definitely the i mean that and the uh green lantern issue definitely evokes something something real in me just the idea that maybe it's like a relationship where once you break up with the person if it was ended on bad terms seeing them is no longer a joy you know you want to move to the other side of the street if you see them coming yeah Something no. that it does relate to something in the real world. Well, and the fact that Hal also still believes that he is the hero. He still believes that what he's doing right. And even though everyone everywhere is trying to get him to stop doing what he's doing. And I guess we'll see this progress throughout the Green Lantern book uh, coming up in a few issues. I think uh, Kyle's actually going to meet with Hal again. So Allegedly. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> um couple quick last couple notes uh, page 20 i'm glad the mission impossible mind trick worked on how on guy mm-hmm. but i hate that version of ice's costume uh i will have to agree this is something that they brought over we, we talked about this before this is something that we brought over in the uh justice league books at the time and dan vado writing him and yeah they gave ice this sort of weird power set that was completely antithetical to what ice was and they gave her this sort of hotty toddy costume that that just doesn't work with her ice never was a show it all character she was not a for lack of better words a slutty character i I like the i liked her old costume that worked and this just yeah i I agree with you it's not a good costume for her well the old costume was kind of the madonna horror where yeah you got that shape but it's just enough where she's also conservative what was the it was the nice sort of spandex look with the t-shirt over it and yeah it was very 80s but this i guess it's very 90s with the cape and the uh low cut you know cut off blouse or whatever but yeah it's just it it doesn't work for the character but yeah Neither does having her die, in my opinion. But yeah, that's, that's <laughs> that that wouldn't yeah that did not benefit the character. Um, but ultimately, the ending kind of left me a little confused because I was kind of on board. It was a pretty straightforward story, and good on that respect. And then you get this ending where 
suddenly he has a suit and sweater on in the next page. Yeah, well, that's the whole thing with the mentor. He is kind of a the, – the best way I can describe him is he's kind of a aping the sort of Freddy Krueger sort of uh, vibe where a lot of the stuff he does is dream imagery. So he'll be able to sort of change from one sort of scene to the next. Uh, they're they're trying to go for a horror vibe here, and uh, obviously it's it's hit or miss. But uh, let's see. I'll go ahead and go with my notes. Uh, yep. uh, again, uh, for the cover, I love the the cover is actually done by Tom Tom Grummet and the anchor Dan Davis here, and I love me some Grummet Superman. But again. We've got guy with cannons on his arms. Uh, I mean, it makes for a dynamic cover where guys blasting Superman and then, of course, Superman. Uh, and so the heat vision looks sort of not really photoshopped in, but sort of added last minute. Yeah. But uh, it would have worked better, I think, if it were just guy with his fist trying to come at Superman. But I guess they needed more 90s action in there. So his guns, guns have guns. Yes. Got to have guns. Uh, let's see. Again, uh, on page four, I was concerned as well that we might be amping up for the Battleship movie about ten years too early. And thankfully, uh, Hasbro or Parker Brothers, whatever, came up with it. So that's that's awesome. Where is it? Oh, page seven, uh, panel four. Um, you can tell that uh, Rampage here is is a careful shaver. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> Because, uh, again, this is another thing with Bo Smith and uh, Mitch Bird. Uh, they they don't mind having their uh, female heroes in perhaps the skimpiest outfits of all. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the Aresia outfit for, uh, I want to say, Guy Gordon or Warrior number like 22 or something. But it was awful. I oh, don't remember oh, that one. Oh, uh, uh, it was Space Hooker Gem. Oh, wow. It She's was truly outrageous. Uh, it, it was truly, truly outrageous. The John Claude Van Nip kick, I love that. That's cool as well. And then, of course, on page 11, you talked about him looking off off, pan, off model. But I do like the fact that he comes back and it's like, you know, I don't care if you're fighting me as hard as supposedly Doomsday, which also was kind of a sticking point for me. I know this is Guy Gardner's book and you – Got to make Guy Gardner the baddest of all. But with Superman in here saying that Guy's punches are almost as tough as Doomsday's, it doesn't sit with me because Doomsday is the ultimate destroyer of Superman. And I think that just sort of – that diminishes Superman in some way by bringing that up. You know, I'm I'm glad that they like to try and promote Guy in his book, but I think they could have done something else. He says his punchers are, you know, some of the hardest I've had, but comparing them to Superman, comparing them to Doomsday just doesn't work for me. But uh, him basically poning Guy Gardner on page eleven, I'm liking that. Yeah. And uh, like I said before, on page twelve again, the panels three through five, where Superman is like, uh, you're coming out of it, not nah, too bad just punch him out. So yeah, the scene between Hal and Aresia, this is one of the complaints that I have about, uh, about Mitch bird is that his male face models seem to be all the same. If you're looking on page 15, 
that top panel, the model of Hal's face is essentially, in my opinion, the same as the model of Guy's face uh, from profile. So that's the one thing that uh, I don't like about Mitch Bird's artwork. He does tend to get male fa- male models' faces sort of out of whack. But through the rest of the, the book, uh, Hal looks kind of on model for uh, Hal Jordan as being drawn by Mitch Bird. So I'm liking that. Mm-hmm. But uh, other than that, uh, you know, it's nice that uh, Supergirl can come in and uh, help out. And uh, page 19, I'll go ahead and mention this. Uh, Superman just standing there with that look on his face of like, is that your best shot? As Guy just blasted him one of the big guns that he had growing out of his arms. That's that's completely awesome. I love it when Superman can just stand there and take someone's punch. It's almost kind of a Popeye thing, too. That's true. Why I oughta. <laughs> that's a good shot, though. That's one of my favorite shots of Superman in the book. Yeah, he well, he he looks determined, and that's always good when Superman looks determined. And his long, flowing locks of hair. Uh, yes, it's very 90s, but I didn't like him here. But yeah, a lot of this, I, I, I didn't notice how much of this book is done in silhouette. Uh, the next page, you've got basically, you know, uh, two out of the six panels here drawn in silhouette and it's nice that you know you're getting that sort of uh it brings out the uh accents of the characters uniforms like the cape and guy's hair and uh ice's or supergirl ice's uniform but it also is kind of a cheat where it it allows uh it allows mitch bird to sort of you know not be as detailed in the artwork so there's give or take there but uh yeah then then move into the final panel with Dementor and the micro car. How he has that girl and himself stuffed into that car and is driving is just beyond me. But it's a comic book and it's the 90s, so you just have to go with it. But <laughs> uh, I enjoyed the book. Actually, out of the three books, you know, surprisingly enough, this one I thought had the best artwork in it. Which is surprising because a lot of times uh, Mitch Bird's artwork is – well, it's not to some people's taste, especially with it being overly physical. So um, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book, but I, I would – if the three, if you're going art, no, all three of them kind of had – well, 709, Action 709 had more consistency, but this one had some of the silhouettes that looked cool. Mm-hmm. You had that determined-looking Superman and some great shots. So this one had more pow. Oh, definitely. Which, if I'm reading a comic, I kind of want some pow. Oh yeah. Well, and uh, when you're when you're reading a uh, a Bo Smith written, Mitch Bird drawn comic book, essentially about 98 percent of it is going to be pow. So nothing wrong with that. Mitch or Mitch Bo Smith will beat you up if you harm a woman. That's why I have ultimate respect for him. I I, I swear on on a stack of Bibles. I uh, I've got some things I've got some things in the work I've got uh, a few big projects I've got to tackle but after that I'm contacting Bo Smith and I'm going to do everything I can to get him on the show because I really want to just sit and jaw with him about this series because yeah. I love this but uh, David I really appreciate you coming on the show it was such a joy having you on here and it was awesome to talk about these comics with you. I had a blast. I appreciate you inviting me. 
why don't you go ahead and let people know uh, what you're doing on the internet and where people can find you. Where to begin? Um, I do a show, a weekly show called Superman Forever with Superman Forever Radio where I just talk about Superman. Right now we're doing the 75th anniversary, so when this comes out, I should be in the middle of Birthright, a three-part series on Birthright. But I'll be doing quite a bit of the big Superman stories throughout the year. Also on Green Lantern's Light with Jeffrey Taylor and Michael Bradley where we're doing earlier incarnations of Green Lantern, um, which you can find at GreenLanternsLight.com. Also, Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, where Michael Bailey, Lee Busby, and I covered the entire Peter David era of the Incredible Hulk, which is about to round a very important corner, much like when Sean here rounded episode 50. Yes, that level of awesome. Mm-hmm. I can't and, wait. And uh, I do a segment on Superman in the Bronze Age called Superboy in the Bronze Age, where I just take some Bronze Age Superboy stories and talk about them right now i'm focusing on superboy and the legion of superheroes and then finally uh by the, by the time this comes out the final episode of the new 52 adventures of superman which i do with john wilson covering exactly what the title says uh will have been released and we will have said goodbye but we're not going to go out without you know a bang or a tear or something well, and that's that's understandable. I know that John has said that he's got a lot of things uh, going on in his family life and a lot of things with job that's keeping him from uh, regular doing podcasts. But yeah, New 52, you know, the fact that you guys actually went and defended and made the New 52 interesting and that was great because so many people from comics today or so many people who love comics today is were kind of down on the New 52. And the fact that you'd go in there and actually promote the the books and promote the Superman titles was awesome. Well, I'd like to th- I'd like to think that when you do a show, especially the type of shows that we do, you're a steward of that character and in some cases that incarnation of the character. And the goal is to share. I mean, you're you're not going to cram it down somebody's throat, but you put it out there so people can see it. So that's what we did was put the new 52 out there, show some of the good aspects of it and, you know, it's brought people in. There's a lot of people that told us that they started reading the new 52 because of our show. So uh, even though it was only 45 episodes long, we, I feel like we did a lot with that series. Awesome. Well, David, again, thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Check out all of David's podcasts. They are all well worth listening to. And uh, since that does it, I guess we will catch you next time on another episode of just one of the guys, a green lantern podcast until next Friday. So long, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback to the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review there. I'd love to read it on the next episode. 
You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. I just realized we we totally missed the joke to do the Dallas Dynasty thing. uh, Okay. Now, I don't know if you've downloaded it yet, but I just put up my April Fool's uh, podcast. And I'll go ahead and let you know on this. It's – I I put up a US1 podcast. (laughs) And uh, me and this guy, Jay Ferguson, he's written in a couple of times to the show, uh, said, you know, I – be willing to do a uh, US one podcast serious as all a uh, serious as a heart attack. So I said, uh, okay, I'll do issues one and two. We'll put it on April fools. We'll make it a joke. And, uh, I got to reading the books and yes, they are incredibly goofy. And yes, at times they are horrible, horrible redneck stereotypes. In fact, there is this one character in there that is just a giant, <sighs> He's every ethnic stereotype that you hate about Southerners. He's a big tubby guy who likes to wear wife beaters and he's misogynistic and he drives a truck and it's, he's just awful, but it's only 12 issues. And I think we we did the first, uh, we did the first two as sort of the April fool's thing, but I think we're going to come back and throughout the rest of the year, like every two months, we'll do another two issues. (laughs) And I want to finish this up because Issue 12 of the run is actually drawn by Steve Ditko. And I'd like to actually see that to see, you know, what Steve Ditko of this time is like. Because, you know, I'm used to the the early 60s Spider-Man stuff, and I'd like to see what he does. And it's just goofy fun. I was going to see if I could pull up that horrible darkness song so you could maybe hear it. Okay, can you kind of hear that? Yeah. Let's see if we can pull this up. See, <clears throat> just the line, it just annoys the hell out of me because it's it's ridiculous stupid. You know, and if they're trying to be ironic, you know, that annoys me as well. So, but uh, whatever it is. But yeah, that's probably going to be our theme song. Okay, there have been worse theme songs.